Hi, Robin. Thank you so much for uh, listening to my story. It means so much to me. I want others to hear about our story and walk away knowing that they are not alone. Hey there, everybody. Robin Roberts here. So those folks you just heard, hmm, well, they are listeners of this podcast. Yes, just like you. We are incredibly thankful for both seasons of Everybody's Got Something. So we wanted to make this last episode of season two a tribute to you who have been listening all along. Something that makes them feel gold. I'm going to keep continuing to live my life on purpose, with a purpose, and for a purpose through my story. We can gain such strength and inspiration by learning from the journeys of others. So I just wanted to share her something. Maybe it's, maybe it's my something too, but that's definitely her something. You are the main reason we are here today. We received so many great voicemails, tweets, emails, phone calls, texts. We want to thank you for all of them. And I wish, I truly wish we could share each and every one of your beautiful messages. As my producer and I were going through all your somethings, a few really hit home with us. We're going to share one of the voicemails in full. And for one listener, well, I just had to talk to them in person. But before I share that sit-down conversation, I want to play the message I received from Chris and Franny. They are college sweethearts who have been married for almost 45 years. As you can imagine, they have a lot in common. But that includes breast cancer. That's right. Franny and her husband, Chris, have both faced the disease twice. Can you imagine that? Their message has a lot of helpful information in it. This wonderful and inspiring couple tell their story best. When breast cancer reared its ugly head almost 20 years ago, I had no idea that during that 20 years we would hear the words, you have breast cancer four more times, twice for me and twice for Chris. I did not fully realize men got breast cancer also. In July 2016, Chris was told he had metastatic breast cancer. It had metastasized, traveled to his lungs. He is now a forever fighter. Breast cancer is a strange world, one which I first entered 20 years ago. Franny and I were excited to celebrate our 25th wedding anniversary. Our daughters were in college, and our eight-year-old son made us feel young. We both had good jobs, and life was great. Suddenly, our world changed when I heard Franny say, I have breast cancer. These words hit my ears like a fire siren. Inwardly, I felt a sense of fear and dread, while outwardly, I tried to project a calm confidence in my new role of caregiver. I discovered that the strange world had a language all its own. I soon learned what biopsy, lumpectomy, chemotherapy, and radiation meant, and I wished I hadn't. We both had great support from family and friends. As news of Franny's breast cancer spread, we were blessed with prayers from many people. Some days were just a blur of information, medication, irritation, and frustration. The chemo treatments were difficult and were followed by weeks of radiation. Fast forward to 2008. Cancer was now 11 years in our rearview mirror, and it was the last thing on my mind when I felt a little tickle in my right nipple. It was no different than any little tickle, and I didn't give it a thought. 
Later, at a routine visit to my doctor, he discussed my triglycerides, the need for exercise, and that I should lose some weight. The appointment was over, and he was walking out of the exam room door when I heard myself say, Doctor, I have this little tickle. I had no plans to mention this. I had not even thought about it. It was if someone else said it. This led to tests and a biopsy, and then to my hearing, Chris, you have breast cancer. Once again, time stopped, and the fire siren in my ear grew louder, and the inward fear and dread appeared once again. In an instant, Franny and my roles were changed. She was now the caregiver, and I the patient. I soon found that while a man with breast cancer was rare, a married couple of survivors was newsworthy. We were both glad that the cancer chapter of our lives was over. The next year and for years after, we were proud to wear our pink survivor shirts and join other survivors at the annual Race for the Cure, and Komen Philadelphia started to do more to raise awareness of male breast cancer. Since both of us have a history of breast cancer, it was recommended we be tested for the BRCA gene. We both tested positive for the BRCA2 mutation. BRCA1 or 2 is a harmful gene mutation that places a person at a higher risk of developing breast and ovarian cancer, melanomas, pancreatic cancer, as well as other types of cancer. Testing was then recommended for our families. Our daughters both tested positive for the BRCA2 gene mutation. They both chose to have prophylactic bilateral mastectomy surgery with reconstruction. Our son will be tested in the future on the recommendation of our doctor. Although we felt guilty having our daughters inherit these mutated genes, both our girls thanked us for possibly saving their lives. On Halloween of 2013, Franny had her annual mammogram. After 16 years, things now seemed almost routine, until the radiologist announced, you have breast cancer. The fire siren in my head once again awoke fear and dread, but this time they were joined by anger, anger that we once again had to endure many procedures, tests, treatments, and traumas. This put a sharp edge to our battle that was not there before. We enjoyed the St. Patrick's Day Parade of 2015, watching our granddaughters as they Irish danced their way through the parade. I, however, was not watching the curb and tripped on it. My next trip was to urgent care, which showed a broken rib. We were soon to leave on a cruise to celebrate Franny's recent negative scan in our 65th birthdays. But a follow-up to the broken rib led to a CAT scan, which confirmed my reoccurrence of breast cancer two days before my birthday on our celebration cruise. We had come to realize that with God's help, we were stronger than any obstacle and could meet any challenge. Treatment ended and life once again returned to normal. Franny retired and followed her dreams of spoiling our grandchildren, writing, and sewing. Our journey into cancer world now seemed like a hobbit tale from long ago. That is, until last July, when I heard my doctor say, Chris, you have metastatic breast cancer. It is incurable but treatable. And so the journey continues. I have switched from pink to purple, as it is the fashion choice of forever fighters. Our something during this ordeal has been threefold. Spreading awareness of breast cancer 
and how many people it can affect and the importance of early detection. Spreading awareness of male breast cancer, although rare, men do get breast cancer also, and both men and women sometimes have no idea this could happen to them. An increasing awareness of metastatic breast cancer, the deadliest form of breast cancer, and strongly advocating for increased research funding. Breast cancer has affected our lives greatly, causing much fear and dread. Great strides have been made in the last 20 years in conquering this terrible disease. However, more research needs to be done, particularly in the area of metastatic breast cancer research. Our married caregiving skills have been honed to a sharp edge because we both have been on each side twice. More than merely a couple of survivors, we are now thrivers, appreciating the value of the time we have with our family, our friends, and each other. Thank you, Franny, and thank you, Chris. You are both so brave, and we are very thankful that you took the time to share your story. You know, we often talk on GMA about how it's important to remember that men can get breast cancer, too. Thank you, Chris. It's so important to be in tune with your health and look at options of early detection. This podcast has introduced me to some really incredible people with unique stories And the one that I'm about to share with you is one I will absolutely never forget. A man named Sammy Kamara wrote to us about his life, which has taken twists and turns you'd only expect from a Hollywood movie. I'm not kidding. What this man endured is, well, you just can't imagine. And yet, he still has a wonderful spirit about him and a great laugh. His tale is a challenging one, and I want to warn you, at times, the conversation does take some pretty dark turns, so be aware if you're listening with young children. His story is about bravery, mental endurance, and it begins in his home country of Liberia. He and his wife, Carol, join me here in New York City to talk about it. My goodness, goodness, goodness. You know, for a couple of seasons, we've been saying at the end of the podcast, everybody's got something we want to hear from you. And I'm looking across at Sammy and Carol, and thank you so much for sharing your something with us. And I need to tell people, I feel bad, because you guys are all dressed up. You got a, <laughs> Sammy, you got a suit on. Carol, you're looking good. And here I'm, a, I'm in my, what does my t-shirt say? Hot, Hot mess, mess still blessed. Blessed. <laughs> <laughs> That's what my t-shirt says. But um, uh, thank you for sharing your story with us and um, in hopes of, of helping others who could possibly be facing something similar. And I also believe that we don't compare despair. We heard from a lot of people and we wish that we could have everybody in here. Mm. But Sammy, your story um, just really, everybody on my staff who read it, the submission that you made um you brought us to tears Hmm. um and also tears of joy and and where you are in your life now so sammy let's start from the beginning tell people your story at the very beginning can you just imagine leaving a comfortable village with a loving parent who were very very poor with our education. They are farmers, and all of a sudden, 
he was told, you have to leave the village and go into the sea to start school. But at the same time, you don't know if you will ever return to the village again. And your parents say to you, well, you have to do this because this is our only way of getting out of poverty. You were considered the savior. Right. That through education. Yes. And so they wanted you to leave your small village in yeah. Liberia. 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 And go to the city of Morovia, the capital city of Liberia. Which was so much bigger than where you were. Right. Because they thought that you would be an opportunity for the family to get an education and be able to come back and help. So they sent you to live with your uncle? Yes. What happened then? I was surprised to encounter the fact that he was prejudiced. Your uncle was prejudiced? Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Because he was light-skinned like you. And my father was dark-skinned, and so because of that, he always felt superior. Mm. And in that, he also was in the National Police Force and was able to speak English. He felt sense of superiority over us. And so he felt like he was more intellectual than the rest of us. And how old were you when you were sent to live with your uncle? Seven? Seven, seven years, years old. Seven years old. Seven years old. So you're there with your uncle who feels like he is superior to you because of his skin color being lighter right. than yours, mm-hmm. even though you're from the same family. Yeah. And he made you feel that way. And what did he end up doing? How did he treat you, Sammy? First of all, within a year, he tried to teach me my alphabet and I have never learned English before. He's speaking in my guild dialect and then telling me in English how to say ABC. And here I was faced with one of the most confusing moments. I bet. How can I say A when I don't know what he is trying to say? Mm. How can I say B? What does he mean by that? And as I hesitate to repeat after him, all I used to get was beating. He would beat you. Oh, yeah. Beat me. And it got to some point when every time he comes home from work, he says, Sam, it's time for ABC now. I tried to run away. And so he devised another method. So he says, stand up here. And as I stand up before him, and he's telling me to say my, my, my ABC. And uh, he said, do some squatting. You use that method in order to uh, weaken my legs so I would not run. So oh. that if you spank me, I would just have, just have to yield. But it got so bad that I, eventually people went from the city and went, and went to the village with a message to tell my, my parents. So someone left because you're so young. You're seven, eight years old. So somebody knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. They get in touch with your parents. What happened then? And so my mother left the... Uh, the village, and came to the city to uh, address the issue. But when she came to town and uh, my uncle met her, he said, why are you here? She said, well, I heard that, you know, Sam has, is, is being mistreated by you, and uh, what's the problem? He said, how dare you stand before me to talk to me like that as a woman? But he felt that she was out of place by coming to town to address the issue. 
So, I I have to share this. Okay. I have to share this. Okay. He had a wife, and he told her that night, that evening, to go to a member of her family to stay. And uh, my mother, of course, was uh, told to stay in the room. And so I went by the bedside and lay on the floor on the small mat that night. And as my mother came into the room, of course, she started to rub his body against her very severely and raped her. Mama was in tears at that time. She was pregnant, too. And as much as she was trying to, you know, wave them off or shove them off, it was some struggle. All I did was just lying down there. I just had to close my eyes, and that was some moment. In the morning when I woke up, I said to Mother, I looked at her face. She looked kind of terrified and saw some bruises. I said, how are you doing, Mom? It's all that she could say to me was, I'm all right. Everything is fine. I cannot imagine a young child, mm-hmm. any young child, anywhere in the world, seeing their mother raped by a family member, by anyone. Excuse me. Thank you for the strength to share that story. How... Oh my goodness! How 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 did you deal with that? Did anyone tell your father? Did your father? What was his relationship like with the uncle? Did he do anything? Could he do anything when he was told? When my father learned of it, of course he was a little kind of timid. He has inferiority complex issue, and so he felt that my uncle had a right to do whatever has to be done. And he just has to bow. But then at the same time, his goal was that someday I will be able to lift up the family. I will be a leader someday. He saw something in me that I just couldn't tell. They kept thinking that you were the the savior. Right. The one that was going to save the family. (laughs) So your uncle, wasn't he also... In essence, wasn't it like child labor? Wasn't he just handing you off to his friends and having you do work for them? Yeah. So basically he said, well, you have to go and live with friends of mine, and what you have to do is uh, labor for them, and then while you go to school. I'm only giving two notebooks for the year, and that's it. If I finish that before then, sorry for me. Then you come home, and it's time to do homework. You are restricted by them not to do any homework until they go to sleep. And when it's time to eat, you help prepare the meals and also serve the table. You are not allowed to eat anything until they eat, and whatever is left on the table, you collect. Oh, my goodness. I'm serious. Whatever is left on the table collect, and that was my meal for the day. When I tried to address it, of course, I was beaten by them too. So you went through that again and again and Mm -hmm. again, Mm -hmm. and then your uncle 
ships you off to America mm-hmm. with friends. Mm-hmm. They adopt you. Mm-hmm. Don't tell your mother and father. Mm-hmm. Your mother and father have no idea mm-hmm. that you're going to America. Mm-hmm. What was going through your mind when you were on your way to this country? The moment I was told, as a matter of fact, that you we are about to leave for America in a few weeks, and uh, we want you to come along with us. Go and tell your uncle that we are taking you along with us. I was a little kind of surprised, and I was scared. And uh, I was very worried of what my outcome, my future outcome would be. How old were you at this time? I was 13 years old then. So you come to the U.S. with this adopted parents. <laughs> what was your life like when you were initially here in the U.S.? Oh. What that, was it like, first of all, you know, to see, I mean, New York City? Yeah. New York, New York. I've heard so much about New York. Coming into New York and looking at the scenery at night, beautiful. How was your English at that point? How much English did you know at that point? Not much. But, but enough. But enough to, mm-hmm. to, to get around. Enough to say hello? Yes, to Good say Good morning? Hello. Oh, yeah. And that? You because went to school? A, yes, you, at that time I was I was in the seventh grade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How was school? How was school for you then? School for me then was very good. I worked very hard in order for me to pass my exam. I have to pay keen attention to the teacher, sit in class and ask many questions. Mm. I did not have enough notebook, sheet of papers to write. My only way of survival was to pay keen attention. Mm. What the teacher was teaching, so that when the time comes for exam, I'll be able to pass the oh test. Oh my gosh! But how? I mean, how? All this has happened to you. Uh-huh. I know your wife Carol's looking at you too. Yeah. She's heard the story. You all have been together for the last eight years, and I'm going to talk to her about your your life now. But how in the world? Now you're a young teen. You're in a country that you'd only seen briefly on TV. You're you're not given the resources to. To do as well as your classmates, yet you are. What do you think within you? What was inside of you that was just making you, was it thinking of your parents? Mm -hmm. Thinking about things they said to you? Mm -hmm. What? I always heard, hear the voice of my parents within. The voice of my mother from the village in my early years, she always said to me, son, I would not always be there with you. Mm. Learn as much as you can now because I would not always be there with you. Then the other voice that I always that always kept me going too was the voice of my father that often said to me, a man is a man that can withstand the storm, regardless of what. Because I'm busy. A man is a man who can withstand the, the storm. storm. Boy, you had a lot of storms. Right. A lot of storms you had to withstand. Right. So whenever I was faced right. with those difficulties, those voices... Mm. Well, like an encouragement to me. <laughs> Remember, Mom said she would not always be with you. And my, your father said, in order to be a warrior, you got to learn to be a man to, and withstand the storm. So get up, get moving. You are a warrior. You go through all this here in the U.S. Yeah. Your adoptive parents, I don't, I don't even want to, mm. I don't even want to talk about them. They kick you out. Right. They put you out on the street. All you have is like your school ID. Mm-hmm. 
Why did they do that? And what did you do at that time? I came home one day, and all that I got was, Sam, you don't live here anymore. Really? I'm serious. And the children were the one that told me that, and I said, how can that be? I mean, I'm just here three years. I have no family. I have no friends outside. I, all I do from day to day is take the children to school, from school, take care of the family, cook, clean up, attend to them. Where do I go? So where did you go? So I waited until the evening. Then when Mr. Kamara came in, he said, you know something? I said, Mr. Kamara, I heard that your wife said to the children that I no longer live here. What is it that I have done wrong? He said, whatever she thinks, that's just it. This was in November of 1975. In the winter. So he's going to kick you out (laughs) in the cold of winter and think, goodness, you had a classmate Mm -hmm. who, talk about a savior, Mm -hmm. the Johnsons. Mm -hmm. Please tell us about Mm -hmm. that that night and that classmate and his family and what they did for you. While coming home, I'm being in tears and worrying, trying to figure out where do I go from here. I met a classmate, and I shared my, my story with him. He said, Sam, I can take you home and see if you can share that information your story with my mother, maybe she probably might be able to help give you some ideas as to how to solve that problem. So for the first time, he took me to his house, and he introduced me to his mother. And, of course, when I shared my story with uh, Mrs. Johnson, she said to me, Well, do you believe in God? I said, Yes. He said, well, pray. So I said, I don't know how to pray. She said, yes, you can pray. Can you talk? I said, yes. He said, well, it's the same thing. Are you talking to me? So talk to God just like you're talking to me. But I was expecting her to pray for me because I thought that she was more spiritual. She has better <coughs> connection than me. She said, no, no, no. It's you that is desperately in need of help. Make your request known to God and see what God would do. Talk to him like seriously, on a serious note with a vow, and see what God would do for you. So I said, all right. I got down on my knees, and I'm telling you just like it is. I said, Lord, I've heard so much about your miraculous power. Mm. You heal the sick and raise the dead. You open the eyes of the blind and help the helpless. Here am I in my condition as I am now. I need parents, caring family that would take care of me like my biological. Please help me with my schoolwork and give me a decent job, study a stable job, and I will serve you with all my heart. And that was it. And after that, she said, you prayed already? She said, I said, yes. I said, then she said, it's all right. But I really don't have much space here. But all that I have is a couch. You can sit on this for the time being, or you can sleep on it for the time being, until whatever happens. And that was it. Uh, to introduce you to faith like that, and for you, Sammy, with all the 
gosh, I, I'm running out of Kleenex here, people. Come on. All that had been thrown in your path, all the evil, and for you to pray like that and not ask for your uncle to be punished or anybody to be punished who had caused you harm, didn't even, for you to ask to have a loving family, job, just the prayer that you, um, says a lot about your character and says a lot about what your parents saw in you. So you're there with the Johnsons. Uh, they introduce you to faith. And then there was that turning point when you got picked for a highly competitive internship. Mm-hmm. Can you explain to the folks what that was? It was a summer program and uh, and went to the New York Botanical Garden in the Bronx. And the supervisor came out and said, guys, are you here this morning to work? And of course, it was a, group, a large group of us. And everybody said, yeah. So, all right, come on, get down your hands and pick up all the papers around here and clean up this yard. And uh, so he went back inside. The moment he stepped in, went in, all my colleagues got up, and everybody's talking to each other and so forth. I was the only one picking mm-hmm. up people. Mm-hmm. I come to work. You prayed for that. You prayed. Yeah. You wanted a job. Yeah. Yeah, so you're there working. I'm working. And then suddenly he came in, and then he opened the door. He saw all the other youngsters standing up. I'm the only one on the, on the ground picking up paper. He said, you, come. He took me into his office. Where are you from? Sit down. And I'm saying, oh, Lord, have mercy. I have to tell this man details of my life story now. I said, I'm from Liberia. He said, oh, Liberia? I said, yeah. He said, as a matter of fact, I was in the military, and um, while I was in the military, I was a part of the team that even wrote the Constitution of, of, of Liberia. And I said, oh, beautiful. So at the end of that summer program, I went back to him and said, Mr. Lavin, that was his name, now he's dead. I said, Mr. Lavin, I really enjoy working at the New York Botanical Garden. Please consider me for a permanent job next year when I graduate. He said, don't worry about it. Just come on in. And that was it. And you did. The following year when I graduated, I went in. That was it. And you've been there ever since. Since 1977. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Praise the Lord. Since 1977. I'm just. I'm sorry. I don't even have to say anything. I'm just staring at both of you right now. Since um, 1977. Hearing that. Mm-mm-mm. Sammy's story is so rich, and that's only half of it. When we come back, he talks about going back home to Liberia for the first time in 30 years, and what he discovers is astounding. You're going to hear what we mean in just a moment. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. After being away from home for 30 years and only speaking to his family a handful of times on a crackly phone line, Sammy decides to go home. A lot was waiting for him, including a very special person who at first didn't even recognize him. 2012, you decide to go back yeah. to find your family. Mm-hmm. You had not been in contact with them much during that time Mm -hmm. that you came to the U.S.? Had you heard from them? Had you talked to them at all? It was very difficult making contact with them at the beginning because I didn't have the address either. Mm. So in order for me to contact them, I sent a letter through the, the National Police Band of Liberia where my uncle used to work. And as a result of that, contacts were made to my uncle. And as a result of that, communication began. My mother's brother now got the news, and he then wrote me a letter and said, Sam, your mother's here. She's not feeling that great, but she is very excited to learn that you are alive, and she would like to talk with you someday. Oh, Lord, I won't forget this one. One evening, all of a sudden, the phone rang, and I pick up, he said, Sam, I have good, great news for you. And I'm like, what is it? He said, well, your mother is here and she wants to talk with mm. you. And I'm like, mama is here? She said, he said, yes. I said, oh, goodness. I mean, this was 1989. So from, you can just imagine, the last I saw of her was 1969. Mm. And now, 1989. That's when I'm hearing her voice now. 20 years later. 20 years later. And I said to her, Mama, this is me. And she is talking in Gyo because she doesn't speak English. Right. But now I don't speak Gyo anymore, my, 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 my African mm-hmm, dialect. Mm-hmm. And here am I trying to talk to her. And finally I had to say it, speak to her. <laughs> Excuse me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had to say to her, this is Sam. He said, Sam? And then I had to say to her, yes, this is Sam. And she still could not understand me by saying this is Sam. Then I said, Ugbo, gontone. Ugbo, gontone. Which means, this is your son, Gonto. And the moment my mother heard my voice like that, something clicked. And she said, oh, oh. I said, yes, this is Sam. And then, of course, my uncle, who was beside her, was able to continue to interpret. So hearing my voice in our African language, Mm. she was mostly convinced that this is the son that she has missed for those many years. What did you say to each other? I mean, I know your uncle was translating, but what? what, after 20 years, what were you saying to each other? My mom was alive. I'm alive. And everything is okay. I long to see you soon. She says, oh, 
Son, I, I can't wait. I'm so excited to hear your voice. But then all of a sudden, cut off. Well, yeah. Yeah, so that was the only, was that the only time? Yes. Yeah. Because what happened is that shortly after that war, a civil war broke out in Liberia. Mm. And so for 14 years? Huh? Yes, 14 years. 14 years, there was no contact. Because of the war. Because of the wars. Yeah. Oh. But in 2012, you decide, right. I'm going home. Right. I'm going to find my family. Tell people what happened. Ah. 2012. I am now with Carol mm-hmm. and this beautiful, gorgeous <laughs> gem of my life. I mean, it's just beautiful having her beside oh, me. Thank I you. can tell. I, I can tell. I can, you know, it's almost like you find a treasured piece to the woods. And oh. uh, it's a true gem. But guess what? In order for you to really see the glow of it, Guess what? You have to polish it. Ah. You polish me? <laughs> What's he trying to right. say here? What's he saying here? Let me hear more. I wish you could see his smile right now. Oh, okay. All right, Sam. Yeah, your little eyebrows going up and down. Okay, so you polished her. So you're on. You're on. So she's got to go back to Liberia with you yes. to look for your family. Yeah. And so then I, I told her that, you know, be good if I can go home. But all connections have broken up. Are broke, have been broken up as a result of the civil war. So one day she got, she started to stroll on the on the internet, and she came across a radio station of West Africa. And so she shared with the man uh, my story, and he said, "Most certainly, you guys can come to town, and we'll try to see if we can get you on the air, and try to see if we can talk about you on the air, and who knows, maybe." That, that would be a, a, a window yeah. of opportunity. So come to town. So with that, then we were convinced to go home. And that was it. We got there. He said, well, I have a gill young man that work on the compound, the radio station compound. And maybe he can, you know, listen to your story. You probably might be of help. So when we were introduced to this young man, of course, he said, you know something, Sam? The village that you are talking about, my village is next to that village. Mm. So I said, have you been there before? He said, I haven't been there for a while, but I can take you there free of charge. So all you got to do is pay for the gas, and that's it. And that was it. So he decided to take us to the, uh, to the village, and uh, we went on a journey. You want to continue with that one? You want to tell us, Carol? So we set out, and um, as we traveled... The roads were extremely bad. We kept getting stuck. But eventually, um, the driver saw a young boy walking, probably about 15 or 16-year-old child. And he stopped him just randomly and said, Do you know where, um, what's the name of your village? Tearplay. Tearplay, yes. So the boy said, Yes, I do. And then Sam asked him, do you know a family by the name of Wangan? So that's Sam's father's name. And the boy said, yes, actually, I'm from that family. Mm-hmm. And that was the first and only person that the driver stopped. So oh. we feel it was some divine intervention. Mm-hmm. So the boy, Sam said, I'm from that family. And, of course, everybody was shocked because some people thought that he was dead. Mm-hmm. 
And the long and short of it is that the boy said, I'll take you there. And okay. while we were on the way. Well, on the way now, all of a sudden, guess who we saw coming on, riding on a, on, on a bike? Who? My brother. Your brother? Brother George. Oh. <laughs> yep, Brother George. Mm. And You recognized him after no, all this no, time? No, no, no. The little man that, that, that we picked up on the side uh-huh. of the road. He was he, in the car now. He was said, that's your brother. That's oh, your brother that's coming. That's oh, your brother. That's oh. And then with that, then, I said, please do not identify me, okay? Don't say anything to him. Let me see if he still remembers me. <sighs> and so George stopped his bike in the back of the car, and I went back there and said, excuse me, sir. How are you today? He said, all right. He said, what is your name? He said, George. I said, George, do you have... A, do you have uh, parents? Said, yeah, but they are dead. Oh. Parents are dead. Oh. I said, do you, for, but first I said to him, do you have a brother? He said, yes, I have two brothers. One, the younger one is dead, and the, older, the oldest one is in somewhere in the U.S. I don't know if he's dead or alive. So then I said, okay. How about your parents? He said, well, mama's dead. She died 2004. Uh-huh. And our, my father died 2008. So with that then, oh, that was some oh moment again. God. All that drive to mm. go home was like just collapsing at that point. Mm. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. But then he started to look at me kind of strange. Why is this strange, total stranger asking me all these questions about my relative and, my, and about myself? And I don't know much about him. So I said, well, you don't have to, to uh, you know, say anything else. I said, are there any other members of the family in, in the village? He said, yes. With that then, I said, okay, you don't have to tell me anymore then. I broke out. I was, tears began to flow. So he's still staring at me. I said, you know who this is? He said, Mm-mm. I said, well, this is Sam from New York. He says, what? I said, yeah, this is Sam, your brother from New York. He said, What? Oh, no! I captured the moment because I was there videotaping. Everybody was in tears. I'm going to share the video with you Mm. one day. I I just got chills just thinking about that. And just grabbed me. Just could. He just didn't know what else to do. He just kept on kissing the ground, grabbing my leg, falling down. (laughs) It's almost. It seemed as if he was telling his dead parents that Sammy is here. Mm -hmm. Oh, you all. Because he said to Sam that his mother said if she doesn't get to see him again, her belly's going to swell. Because Sam was the first boy, mm-hmm. and they pinned all the dreams of the family yes. on him. Yes. But you made it home. Yeah. You made it back. Yeah. I can't imagine what all the emotions that must have been going through you oh, yeah. at that time. The joy of seeing your brother, the sorrow, of, of course, of your other brother, your mother and father. Mm-hmm. Um, Combination of sadness and at the same time happiness. Yeah. But I was more saddened of the fact sure. that my parents were non-dead. And I tell you the truth, my biggest dream, really, was to take the parents over the here, Johnson. the Johnson, mm-hmm. one day and take them to Africa and have both parents meet each other. And I, I, I long, my dream was to stand between them and hug them 
I'm sad to say, I said, thank you so much. Had it not been for you, I would not be standing up today. That was my biggest dream. But, oof. Yeah, the Johnsons died first. And yeah, Mama, the Johnson, the Johnson died. died. 2007, Mrs. Johnson passed away. And two, 2002, Mr. Johnson passed away. Oh, but they know. They know. Because you have faith like I have faith. Mm-hmm. They, they know. They did meet. Oh, they met in heaven. But, you know, for you to say that about your biological parents, because they loved you. Mm-hmm. You were even dirt poor, but a very loving family mm-hmm. who wanted to send you off to make a better life for yourself and for them. And then to have the Johnsons, which had to be difficult for you to, after all that you'd been through, to accept a family's love, to not be one eye looking at them like, okay, what are you going to do to me? Mm-hmm. How are you able to... And I know faith has helped a great deal to to let them in, to embrace them, and to believe that this was your family. First of all, it's, it was their, their, their caring treatment of me, accepting me in their home, and uh, how they did that. I, I would say this was really a divine intervention because mm-hmm. they didn't know me. I never met them before, before my, sharing my story with them, for them to just accept me, and all those years I, I lived with them, they never asked me for a dime. Oh. Never asked me for a dime. And they did not burden me with work here. It's always, I was always at my free will to do whatever I wanted to do in terms of helping them so forth. So my drive was always to be there for them, regardless of what, in helping them around the house, what needed to be done, and so on and so forth. And I started my work at the New York Botanical Garden. I said, Mom, I brought my first paycheck. I, said, I was so excited. <laughs> Mom, I got <laughs> I'd like to share this with you. She said, Sam, it's your money. Uh, it easy. It's your money. This is Mrs. Johnson Mrs. You, were Johnson. Talking, you were talking to. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's your money. All right? Uh, I mean, you have a life to live. You, you're thinking of family. You've got to start saving now. It's your money. So take it easy. And oh, did you boy. think of her as your mother? Yes. You said mom like that. Yes, you, right. thought, you thought of her as your mother. That's mom. exactly yes, how I call yes, her. Yes, but but yes. you know, Robin, it was like, you asked that question, and as Sam has told the story, so he had caring parents, and then he had all that brutality after he left them. And so, was, again, he was placed with caring people. So the same kind of care that he received from his birth parents was like it was being restored right. with the Johnsons. Mm, right. Yes. And I think that was like a door that opened based on what he has told me that caused him to open up and he called Mr. Johnson dad. Yeah, Mr. Johnson was a pastor too. Oh my dad yes. and his wife um, Idris. Wow. Right. Wow. I, I can see why you selected this woman <laughs> to be in your life uh, Carol. You all you're this wonderful partnership and tell people how you are working together with your foundation to share your story mm-hmm. in hopes that other children from Sam, from your country, mm-hmm. don't go through what you did. So, Carol, tell yes. us about that foundation. Actually, when we came back um, in 2012 from Liberia, we had, we had no plan to start a foundation. But the thought and the images that we saw when we were there of children who were in need, not going to school. I mean, we just saw human being with potential being wasted. Right. 
Sam was haunted by his own past and that this is what his parents was, were, were trying to do. Mm-hmm. And so we thought about um, forming the organization to start a movement of sort where and ask other people to join and help us to make it happen. So the name of the foundation is Reaching Out to Children with Kindness, ROCK for short. R-O-C-K. Yes, R-O-C-K. Mm-hmm. And um, the main drive of the organization is to open doors to education for children. And we have, we got a lot of support um, from the New York Botanical Garden mm-hmm. when we launched, um, actually, this time, where's your book? Oh, you have a book because yes. you, you all collaborated yes. on a book because... I, I, you know, yes. When Sam Sam kept telling me his story, so I said to him, "Just write down whatever you remember," and then I was the scribe, as he told me. Uh-huh. So we brought a copy of the book. It's well, thank the you. Audition. So, what is the title of the book? The title of it is "Breaking Point." Breaking oh, this one is yours. Oh, thank you. Breaking Point: A Journey right. to Self Awareness and Finding Purpose in Pain, and it is available on Amazon.com. The proceeds, all of it, go towards the foundation to make that happen. Bless you for wanting to make your mess your message. That is something my mama taught me. And you all are doing that through the foundation. And you do have a beautiful family at the Botanical Garden. In by talking about what they have meant to you and how they are your family and how the beautiful gardens remind you of your homeland. Mm. As a matter of fact, the forest, uh, straight scenery, always reminded me of the village life with river, with trees, and with flowers and stuff like that. It's always calm and peaceful, well-maintained. That's one, another part of it. And besides that, too, I've met some beautiful people as supervisors and also co-workers in the garden that have really been a tremendous blessing to me in terms of assisting me to uh, uh, work in the garden. And and just to add to what he said, um, the garden is a part of his identity, Mm -hmm. and there is family. When we launched the book, they gave us the opportunity to to launch it at the garden in 2015, and the current president... Mr. Gregory Long. Yeah, he said he read it in two days, and um, he's a strong supporter of what we're trying to do. Right. Finding purpose in pain. Finding purpose in pain. I feel blessed working at a garden, and 40 years now I've been there. And we're blessed. (laughs) We're blessed to have you in season two of Everybody's Got Something. Both of you. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. You are blessed, and you are both a blessing. Thank you. And just so grateful for this time. Usually we end with this little thing uh, with the fishbowl. I'm not going to do it. This is how special you are. Then would you stop with the eyebrows? What's <laughs> he keep rising his eyebrows? No, we usually do this fishbowl, you know, don't think, don't blink. But you know what? We're going to spend all the time, give people all the time that you have spent yeah. with us and yeah. share. You're going to make a difference, and you have I made really a difference. I just say something that we're very excited to be here. Yeah. And that's an understatement. Because this is answered prayer. That's right. Mm. You know, we we have been praying for a season and asking the Lord to open opportunities. And when Alex called, you know, we were like 
What? <laughs> so this is a tremendous blessing. Yeah. Thank you so much. A- Alex, my producer, and Gabe, my producer, yeah. uh, they spent a lot of time, and they've heard from a lot of the people who have reached out, and all of them are special to us, and you represent the people Right. Who mm. listen to this podcast so mm. incredibly well? Okay. Hot mess, still blessed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank y'all. Thank Take you care. so much, Robin. And I would like to say truly, you are an inspiration, oh. another stepping stone <laughs> for success. I can see that. Oh. Thanks again. You're Thanks. very welcome. You're Thanks. Very welcome. Thanks. Thank you both. Mm-hmm. I tell you, I am never going to forget that conversation. And I only wish you could have seen Sammy and Carol together in person, the way their faces light up when they talk about one another and the way Sammy has his eyebrows go up and down. I'm so happy for him to be in such a good place now, working at the garden, children that love him, and his wonderful wife, Carol. Thanks again to both of them for taking the time to share their story with us. And of course, to all of you, Thanks to the folks who sent us the incredible messages and to everyone who wrote in to robinpodcast.com. We have loved having you along for this wild ride so far, and we can't wait to see what's in store next time around. All right, people, time to say so long, for now anyway. And before we do, I want to give a big shout out to my podcast posse, John Green, our wonderful executive producer. Alex Goodson, who produces and started this podcast last year. Such a great idea, Alex. I'll never be able to thank you enough. Josh Cohen, who edits and mixes all of our episodes. He is brilliant. Oh, Rennie A. Callister, a Barnard grad. My liaison, and she keeps those trains running on time. And Danielle Genet, Jade Anderson, Gabe Kerr, They're my babies, my little babies. And they are fabulous producers on my team. A shout out to everyone at Rockin' Robin Productions, GMA, and ABC Radio that contribute to this podcast. Can't wait for next season. So one last time. (laughs) Come on, get up, get up, get up. Say it with me now, say it with me now, say it with me now. Hot mess, still blessed. And I am. I'm Robin Roberts. Can we live for each other, love one another, stand together in the light? Can we live for each other, love one another, stand together in the light? You can feel it in your body and know it in your mind. Everybody's got a little something to offer to humankind. Everybody's got a little something, so remember to always be kind.